All right. Please turn again in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're going to read again in a moment, verses 44 through uh, 53 that Brad read for us a moment ago. Last week, I began a five-week series on the purposes of the church. And last week, we considered one of the purposes of the church in a message titled, The Peculiar Glory of Gathered Worship. And I talked about how uh, one of the main reasons the church exists is to promote the public worship of God, to promote corporate worship, and how we're supposed to pursue the presence of God himself in the context of gathered worship. And that's what I call the peculiar glory of gathered worship. Uh, Now this evening, I'd like us to consider one of the purposes of the church that I believe we should understand as central to our very existence as the church. I'd like to consider the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel as one of the purposes of the church. One of those things that ought to be so central to the very essence of what it means to be the church. That is the proclamation of the gospel. And rather than seeking to open up one passage in order to demonstrate that the proclamation of the gospel is uh, to form a large part of the church's mission, I'd like to attempt to capture something of the New Testament thrust and vision for the church's role in the proclamation of the gospel. I want to hit some, some highlights in the gospels themselves and in the book of Acts to, to show this, this thrust uh, in the New Testament, that the church is the agent through which God is proclaiming his gospel uh, to the world. And uh, I'd like to do this by zeroing on a, a pivot point in redemptive history. Redemptive history is, is a record of the events through which the work of redemption was accomplished and the gospel has gone out into the world to save sinful men and women. I'd like to go to, to, go to what I'm calling a pivot point in that narrative of redemptive history. It comes after Jesus has come into the world. It comes after his life and his, his life full of miraculous signs and wonders and teaching. It comes after his death on the cross and even after his resurrection. But it comes before his ascension. It's this pivot point in the narrative between Christ's resurrection and Christ's ascension that I want us to look at tonight. This pivot point is recorded for us in a number of places uh, in the Gospels. It's recorded for us most famously in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Recorded again for us in Mark 16 and verse 15. It's recorded in Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. And in a a shorter, more condensed version in John 20, verse 21. And then we actually see it in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. We're not going to look at each one of those. I just wanted to list those for you so you can write them down. Maybe look at them later. Uh, These passages all reference, uh, to some degree or another, what has has come to be known as the Great Commission. Uh, The words Great Commission do not appear in our Bibles, but it's, it's the language we've ascribed to these passages that talk about the great mission of the church, the commission that Christ gives to his disciples uh, after his resurrection, but before before ascending to the right hand of the Father. The most famous or most well-known statement of the Great Commission appears in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. I'm just going to read that for you, quote that for you. You don't need to turn there. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 reads, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This text has been uh, come to be known as the, the Great Commission, the commission Jesus gives to his church, to his disciples there. 
but it's recorded for us again and in, in a number of other places. I want us to look again at Luke 24, the passage we read a moment ago, and consider the presentation of this great commission that we're given in Luke 24. So, so look at your Bibles now, please, and read along with me. Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them away, out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. What do we have here in Luke 24? Jesus has has risen from the grave triumphantly over sin and death, And basically, he preaches the gospel to his disciples. We read in verse 44 how he he tells them of of how all these events have have, have been um, a matter of fulfillment of what was given in the law and Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms. And then we have this statement in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. What a wonderful phrase. Uh, I have begun seeking actually to pray Luke twenty four forty five whenever I come to the scriptures. I don't do it every morning when I come to my devotions, but I certainly do it every time I preach. I pray, Lord, will you, will you be so kind as to open my mind to understand the scriptures? Not completely unlike the way you did that for the disciples after your resurrection. Just, just as a side note that it has nothing to do with the sermon, uh, I, I want to encourage you to start praying that when you come to the Bible. Lord, open my mind to understand the scriptures. Give me insight into your word. Help me to, to understand the word of God and to understand what you're communicating through, through the Bible. Uh, I would just encourage you to pray that uh, as you read the scriptures. Verse 46, Jesus said that, that it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And here it is that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Uh, this is the gospel uh, that, that the Christ was to, to die and to, to, to rise again on the third day according to the scriptures and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins was to be preached to all the nations. It was to start in Jerusalem, but it, it wasn't to stop there. It was to go into all the world. The gospel was to be proclaimed and the disciples were witnesses to these things. In verse 49, Jesus promises that he's going to, to send the promise of the Father upon them. He's, he's going to clothe them with power from on high. Now, I think that's the Holy Spirit he's talking about, and I'll show you why in just a minute. But this, this promise of the Father that's going to come, this, this power from on high that they're going to be clothed with, that's the Holy Spirit who's going to come in power, and he's going to fuel this mission to go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the nations. Now I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1. And I want to share with you here just, just a, 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 um, a little element of New Testament study that I just want you to know and tuck away and understand for the rest of your Christian life. Everyone here who, who wants to grow in their study of the Bible, understand how the scriptures were put together and how we should read them in their context and the way they were meant to be, to be read, um, our, our, uh, our Bibles... Uh, have the presentation of four Gospels, and then we have the book of Acts. And they're, they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they were arranged that way originally uh, to adopt what was believed to be the chronological order of the canon. 
So Matthew's Gospel first, then Mark, Luke. We really don't know which Gospel was first. We're almost certain that the Gospel of John was last, and that's why the Gospel of John appears, appears fourth. And then you have the book of Acts. Well, I personally think the way our, our Bibles are organized, uh, at least in this way, actually puts us at a disadvantage. Some of you may know this, some of you may not, but I want you to know this and remember this. Uh, always remember that Luke and Acts were actually written as a two-volume set. They were both written by Luke, and uh, they were written as a, a part one and a part two. Uh, Luke's gospel was part one. It's a story about Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And Acts is, is, is like the sequel. It's part two of the book. And it talks about, about now this, this church that's been commissioned to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And it tells about the evolution, development, and, and spread of the church uh, in, in, in the first century. It's a two-volume set. We have to always read it that way. And I encourage you, when you read Luke's gospel, read, read the book of Acts along with it. And so you could maybe tuck that away. That's for free. You just hang on to that little tidbit in New Testament study. But now let's look at, at Acts 1, part 2 of this, this masterpiece of Luke, volume 2 of the story. Let's read the first eight verses of Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We just saw that in Luke 24 just a moment ago. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. We just heard about that, the, the promise of the Father that was going to come. To wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's where I get this idea that the power that the disciples are going to be clothed with, that that was the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see the, the thrust, the vision here. Between Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension, he gives this great commission to his disciples he says that they're to go into all the world and they're to proclaim the gospel, the gospel that the Christ needed to come in fulfillment of the scriptures and that he was to die and to rise again according to the scriptures and that, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins was, be to, was to be preached, not only in Jerusalem, was to start there, but was to be preached and proclaimed to all the nations. And what do we see in the book of Acts? Starting with Acts 1.8, this begins to happen. The disciples, the church, were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and in Samaria, which that's something right there. If you know your, your New Testament history well, you know Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Just had a, a visceral dislike and hatred for each other. And yet, and yet Jesus is saying the gospel was supposed to go to those Samaritans. And not to, not to stop in Samaria, but then to go to the uttermost parts of the world. And what we see in the book of Acts from then on is the spread of the church. The gospel going to new places, new towns, new cities, new regions... And, 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 and people being converted and brought out of darkness and brought out of their various ways of life and, and pressed into the church and the church is growing and expanding and, and being planted, the gospel is being planted all over the known world. Such that by the time we get to the end of the New Testament, 
Churches have been planted in, in, in Ephesus and Antioch and Colossae and Philippi and Rome. We even see at the end of Romans, Paul has ambitions of bringing the gospel to Spain. And that's when the gospel continued to go forth in our day. The gospel is spread to the corners of the world. And even to this day, men and women are being converted all over this globe on every continent. And churches are being planted. And the gospel is being, is being uh, planted like a seed all over the known world. This is the thrust. This is the vision. The New Testament vision is one in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed by the church to the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. You get that? You picking up on what I'm saying? You tracking with me? The New Testament vision. We saw it after the resurrection. We're seeing it, seeing it now in the book of Acts. Really, we see it in all the Old Testament that there's coming a day when, when, when the gospel will go to the nations. We, we heard a verse this morning, those of us who were at Grace Reformed in Mebane, uh, the verse in Romans 15, a reference from Isaiah. It talks about, about the one in whom the Gentiles will one day hope. We're seeing that fulfillment now after the resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament vision is one in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed by the church to the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I love that. I hope you, you see that so clearly. That, that Jesus is commissioning his disciples, his church, to go into the world and proclaim the gospels to all people to the glory of God. Some of you know as, as part of an academic project, uh, I've been studying uh, Charles Spurgeon. The, the, the great preacher, the Prince of Preachers of Victorian England. Uh, he, he basically pastored one of the first mega churches. Uh, Spurgeon preached every Sunday to about 6,000 people at the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in the center of, of London. Uh, he was a fabulous preacher. I, I have 63 volumes at home of his, of his printed sermons. I mean, just, just a, a tour de force uh, in the area of preaching. And uh, what, what is less well known about Charles Spurgeon is that though he was a great megachurch pastor, a pastor of the biggest church in all of Christendom during his day, uh, he was also uh, a vigorous, fervent church planter. He wanted to see churches planted not only uh, in his own country, but all over the world. And, and the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the, the pastor's college that he oversaw, sent missionaries literally all over the globe. And churches were planted all over the place. In fact, uh, uh, by the time Spurgeon died, uh, he had planted 200 churches in Britain alone. And, and what is still more amazing about that number is that, is that most of those churches in the early days were actually planted in London. I mean, London, granted, was the biggest city in the world at the time. Uh, but yet you see Spurgeon, here he has this massive preaching center at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And yet he's planting churches like three miles away and then five miles away and then ten miles away in different corners of London so that other parts of the city might be saturated with the gospel coming from other preaching centers, other churches. And, then, and that was his, his method of getting the gospel proclaimed in London. So in light of all that, I want you to hear this quote from Spurgeon, okay? I just got done telling, telling you that the New Testament vision is one in which the gospel is proclaimed uh, uh, to the world through the church and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Spurgeon says this far more eloquently than I can. Uh, so let's, let's listen to Mr. Spurgeon as he shares with us his vision for missions and church planning. He says, quote, The Christian church was designed from the first to be aggressive. Picking up on that? The Christian church was designed from the first to be aggressive. It was not intended to remain stationary at any period, but to advance onward, 
until its boundaries became commensurate with those of the world. It was to spread from Jerusalem to all Judea, from Judea to Samaria, and from Samaria unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Listen to this. It was not intended to radiate from one central point only, but to form numerous centers from which its influence might spread to the surrounding parts. What what an amazing vision. The church, according to Spurgeon, from the first was meant to be aggressive. It was meant to be on the offensive. It was meant to advance. At no point was it supposed to be stationary. But it was to to go forward. It was to ascend, to take the hill. And, And it was not to just radiate out from one central point. This wasn't about just growing some big megachurch as big as you could possibly grow the thing. Rather, Spurgeon thought it much better to see that the gospel was proclaimed through a number of preaching centers out of which the gospel could radiate to the world. Isn't that an amazing, profound, wonderful, huge, enterprising view of what the church ought to be about in the world? Well, if all this is correct, then the proclamation of the gospel to the world by the church is one of the central purposes of the church. And that has huge implications for us. In in, in fact, in a moment, I want to consider five lessons for us from this New Testament vision of gospel proclamation, five implications for us as we seek to become a church. But but I want you to understand from this vision, uh, it's part of our core identity as the church that gospel proclamation be what we're about. But before I look at those five implications, I want to quickly stop and ask a question that I feel needs to be answered before we proceed. I'm arguing that the church is charged with the proclamation of the gospel. But that begs the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, some of you you actually just smirked when I said that. I hope, actually, for most of you, uh, you view the gospel as a very simple message, and you could actually define it for for us. If If I had you come up here one at a time, you'd probably present to us, tell us what the gospel is. Well, the gospel is something. It's not just everything that we do. It's not just, you know, uh, just, just this vague uh, uh, ethereal idea that we love or that you just got to repent and believe. The gospel is actually a message. And it's a very simple message. It's not everything that we might preach, contrary to the opinion of some. There are some that use the gospel as basically like a junk drawer term. Everything's a gospel issue. So our view of of baptism becomes a gospel issue. Our view of church polity becomes a a gospel issue. Our view of how we raise kids, it's a gospel issue. Well, I hope hope you understand that's wrong. The gospel is a thing. The gospel is a message. It's something specific. And not that those other things are unimportant. They're just not the gospel. The gospel is actually a very simple message, and the scriptures define it for us. Uh, Looking at the clock now due to time, I don't have time to go into as much detail as I would like to go. Um, but but I, I, I do believe uh, the simple, pure gospel is actually conveyed to us in a, a number of places in the Bible. I'm just going to list these texts for you. Okay, There are three places that I think summarize the gospel best uh, in the New Testament. One is in John 20 and verse 31. That's probably the most simple summary of the gospel in all the Bible. Uh, it says, But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Is that the gospel? You better believe that's the gospel. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing that, by having faith in, in, in him and who he is, you may have eternal life in his name. 
There's two other texts that I think provide a, a slightly fuller understanding of what the gospel is, and we won't go into them now for the sake of time. One is uh, the famous statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I encourage you to read that this week as a, as a summary, a biblical summary of what the gospel is. And honestly, I think another one appears for us in Luke 24, what we read a moment ago. Fantastic summary of the gospel in Luke 24, uh, verses 44 through 49. I'm going to basically try to condense those three texts into a one-paragraph definition of what the gospel is. Okay? Uh, don't try to write this down. We're going to record this. You can listen to it later. I'd be happy to send this to you if you'd like. But just listen as I read, as I try to condense the, the Bible's uh, teaching on what the gospel is in, in just one paragraph. The gospel is the good news that God has sent his son into the world to save his people from their sins. It is the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he came in human flesh, dwelt among men, and went to the cross to suffer the wrath of God that was due to the sins of his people. Having died for the redemption of his people, he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and was seen by his disciples and hundreds of other witnesses before ascending to the right hand of God. He now lives and reigns as the risen Lord of the universe. And he offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life in his name to all those who repent of their sins and believe on him for salvation. That is the gospel. That is the gospel we as the church are called to proclaim to the uttermost parts of the world. This is the message we've been entrusted with. This is what the Great Commission calls us to deliver to the nations. And it's through this message being proclaimed that we will make disciples. Do all those other wonderful things that the Lord Jesus calls us to do as the church. That is the gospel message. This is the message the church is called to proclaim. Now, five lessons for us here, Emmanuel Church. Five implications for us here in the area of gospel proclamation. And I'll move through these as quickly as I can. Number one, the mission of the church might be more, but is never less than the Great Commission. Catch up? The mission of the church might be more, but is never less than the Great Commission. What do I mean by that? Well, as already we've seen, as we're going to see in this series on the purposes of the church, the church is to do more than just proclaim the gospel. It's to do more than the Great Commission. Maybe there are all sorts of other things we as the church might be involved in. Maybe, maybe we should be involved in some measure in social justice and in good works and mercy ministry. Maybe we should be involved in, in, in certain programs connected to, to, to um, uh, you know, uh, ministry in our community and blessing our local community. But listen, the, the, the mission of the church, though it might be more, is never less than the Great Commission. The call to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. And so any definition of what the church is to be about, what the mission of the church is, that does not include this, the Great Commission, the proclamation of the gospel to the nations, is a deficient definition. Any church that claims to be the church and yet does not understand gospel proclamation to be about their calling in the world is not a church. It's something else. It might be a, a, a nice parachurch organization. It might provide some helpful work in the area of benevolence and, 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 and parachurch ministry, but it's not the church. Because fundamental to the identity of the church, of what it even means to be a church, is that we're the entity, the, the gospel enterprise that is, is, is responsible, God's agent, God's tool, to communicate and proclaim the gospel to the world. That's what it means to even be the church. You kids, listen to me here. 
Uh, you parents can listen in, but I'm, I'm really talking to you kids right now, okay? Uh, what does a, a dog do? If I ask you, what, what does a dog do? What would you say? you say? You say bark, right, Claire? Very good, very good. A dog barks. What does a cat do? Cat meows, right? How about a, how about a duck? Duck quacks. That's right, that's right. Very good, very good. Well, dog barks. Cat meows, a duck quacks. Suppose I brought a, a dog in here, a beautiful, nice golden shepherd here. And I said, look at my, look at my beautiful cat. Don't you love this cat here? What, what, what would you guys say? You'd say, that's crazy. That's not a cat. Look, he's barking. He barks like a, that's a dog. See, because he barks. He has a pointy tail that he, he wags. He has the ears. He has the, t- that's a dog. I can obviously see that's a dog. A dog barks. A, a cat meows. A duck quacks. Well, listen to me, kids. I want you to remember this. Yes, a dog barks. That's how you know it's a dog. A cat meows. That's how you know it's a cat. A duck quacks. That's how you know it's a duck. You know how you know what a church is? If it's preaching the gospel. Churches preach the gospel. Dogs bark. Churches preach. And I want you to remember that, kids. No matter where you go in the world. Some of you are going to grow up and maybe you'll be in different parts of the world, different areas of the country. And you might be looking for a church one day. This is how you'll know it's a church. Do they proclaim the gospel? Because that's part of just fundamentally what it means to even be a church. If, if part of what it means to be a dog is that a dog barks and that a, a cat meows, part of what it means to be a church is that they preach the gospel. That's part of the, the very core of what a church is. And I want you kids to always remember that churches, if they're Christ churches, real true churches, proclaim the gospel. All right, you adults can come back in and listen now. You kids, I want you to listen too, but now the adults can, can come back in on, on the message. The mission, the mission of the church might be more, but is never less than the Great Commission, the call to proclaim the gospel to the nations. All right, number two, second implication for us. Because the proclamation of the gospel forms part of the mission of the church, because the proclamation of the gospel forms part of the mission of the church, and what I'm about to say, I'm praying, will be like a seed that's planted in our assembly here that grows into a beautiful tree, like, a, like an acorn grows into an oak. Because the proclamation of the gospel forms part of the mission of the church. Evangelism, missions, and church planting should be among our top priorities. Evangelism, missions, and church planting should be among our top priorities. What are we at, to be about in the world? Well, maybe we should organize some community events. Maybe we should have a... a, 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 a maybe maybe we uh, uh, should, should organize some event like that. Uh, maybe we should, should have a, a various Bible studies here at the church. But, but all that to say, uh, what we are to be about among our top priorities should be the evangelization of the lost, uh, missions work, and church planting be among our top priorities. One thing I love, the, the church we're being sent out of, it's just so much part of the DNA of where we come from. Uh, in any given year over the last 30 years, anywhere from 25 to 35% of our budget has been uh, to, to, to foreign missions. There's 25 to 35% of our budget goes to foreign missions. That's not even including raising up pastors and church planting and all those other things. Among our top priorities, brothers and sisters, if we are serious about the Great Commission, if we are serious about gospel proclamation, listen, if we're serious about being a church, we need to be serious about the evangelism and missions and church planting. And so what you're going to hear from me again and again and again, and I hope anyone who who provides any leadership to this group and this church, 
is that we want to be vigorously, fervently involved in the evangelization of the lost, both in our community and all around the world. And that means we want to send missionaries and support missionaries and plant churches. I've been praying that even from the mix of people we have here tonight, is there someone here that might be raised up as a missionary out of our church and sent uh, somewhere into the world to proclaim the gospel? I'm praying that that will happen. I'm praying that we'll be a sending church. The gospel, friends, in in large measure has come to Winston-Salem. I mean, there's tremendous work to be done. There's hosts of lost people all over this community that we want to try to reach. Uh, But we've been blessed. A lot of the gospel in our land, in our state, in Winston-Salem in particular. And I hope that our church becomes a sending hub to get the gospel to the world. Where we raise up people here, we send them out. Because we're serious about the call to proclaim the gospel to the world. And so we're serious about evangelism and missions and church planning. Okay, moving along now. Number two. Excuse me, number three. Third implication for us tonight. The call to proclaim the gospel is not a call to each individual Christian only. However, each individual Christian is called to aid the church in its call to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of the nations. Let me read that again. I see some of you are taking notes. The call to proclaim the gospel is not a call to each individual Christian. However, each individual Christian is called to aid the church in its call to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of the nations. Now, I see some of you are trying to process that. Let me explain what what, what I'm saying here. The Great Commission, this call to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, etc. Is the Great Commission given to each individual Christian or is it given to the church? I think it's the latter. So, so, so we shouldn't understand the Great Commission to mean uh, the Great Commission is given to me and so it's on me to make disciples and to teach them and to baptize them and, and all those sorts of things. No, 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 no. The Great Commission is given to the church. And because it's given to the church and because every Christian is called to be part of the church, every Christian plays a part in the Great Commission, but does so, does so through the church. And so we recognize here that, that, that not everyone is called to be an evangelist in a, in a pronounced way. We all ought to try to evangelize in what ways we can. But there are people in certain seasons of life, stay-at-home moms, shut-ins, people who are working 70 hours a week who have almost no opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Well, well people in that situation shouldn't feel guilty. But they ought to still participate in the life of the church. And they ought to see their support of the church. They're giving of their time and serving the church, giving of their money and, and, and working to preserve the unity and strength of the church is serving the church in its mission to proclaim the gospel to the world. And so this has implications for preachers, but it has implications for lay people as well. Everything you do to serve the church is strengthening the church, hopefully, which is helping the church in fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, for some of you, that will mean that you will perform evangelistic uh, tasks I think some people in our group here tonight, from what I know of this group, I think some of you have pronounced evangelistic abilities. And I'm hoping that the way in which you plug into the mission of the church is that you will be uh, uh, very forward in evangelism. And yet some, that's not your gift. And maybe, maybe you won't ever be preachers, or you won't ever be those who, who evangelize on a regular basis. And yet there are all sorts of things you can do to bless the church and help the church in our effort to proclaim the gospel. You could help in the support of missionaries. You could help in the training of pastors. You could help in Sunday school ministry to raise up the next generation of those who will proclaim the gospel. Uh, You can help in in, in working to preserve the unity and solidarity of the church and the peace and edification of the saints so that we won't divide, so that we don't have to to call missionaries off the field or that the church won't be ruptured, so that the mission won't, won't be hurt. 
There's all sorts of things every one of us can do. And so I'm calling each one of you, if you're to be part of the church, consider how can I plug in? How can I plug into this great overarching mission to reach the world with the gospel? You know, I worked for a company called Cintas, big old company. I worked on the production team. And we had, I, I, I didn't write down the vision statement. I don't have it with me. Our vision statement was something like, you know, we exist to maximize the value of our products for our customers, etc. Well, I worked in production for seven years. I never saw a customer once. Never saw a customer. How could I maximize value for the customer? I never meet them. And yet, the sales team, the service team who did interface with the customer, they depended on the quality of my work in the production department so that they could satisfy the customer. See what I'm saying? You may, not, you may, you may never uh, uh, have a teaching role in the church. You may never baptize anybody. And yet all sorts of things you do can contribute to the success of the Great Commission. And that's what I'm encouraging each one of us to do. Plug in. Don't think this all is on you. It's not like you need to... No, no, no heroes here, right? But plug into the church and serve the church in its great vision to proclaim the gospel to the world. Number four. The proclamation of the gospel should include not only the evangelization of the lost, but the teaching of the gospel's implications for the entire Christian life. The proclamation of the gospel should include not only the evangelization of the lost, but the teaching of the gospel's implications for the entire Christian life. I'm distinguishing between two things here. Preaching the gospel, proclaiming that very simple message, and then spelling out the implications of the gospel, which is something different. Don't confuse those two things. I I think a lot of things go awry when we start confusing the implications of the gospel with the gospel itself. We as a church are not just about making converts. We're called to make disciples. And so we need to proclaim the gospel, introducing Christ to people for the first time, eliciting, summoning them to to come in repentance and faith. But then the rest of their lives were to work to disciple them in the context of the church. The way Jesus said this is that we're to teach them all that he has commanded them. We're to teach disciples of Jesus Christ, those who come into the church, those who are converted, they're to grow as disciples. We're not just about making converts. We're about making disciples. It's not just about uh, uh, getting as many responses and decisions as possible. No, it's about drawing people to Christ and winning them to the Savior and then helping them to grow as disciples. And listen, God gets glory from that. He wants these converts, these people who have experienced the new birth, to grow, to abide in him, to thrive as disciples of Jesus Christ, to put to death their sins, to put on Christ. Uh, 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 to, put, to, to, to put to death sin, to be made alive in Christ. That's what, that's what Jesus wants to see in his disciples. He wants them to grow. And the church is the context in which people are discipled and where the implications of the gospel begin to come clear and people are, are nursed and nurtured in the gospel and to the implications for every area of life. The proclamation of the gospel should include not only the evangelization of the lost, but the teaching of the gospel's implications for the entire Christian life. And now fifthly, And more briefly here, the call to gospel proclamation assumes that the church is meant to be on the offensive and the power of the gospel will prevail. Isn't that sweet? The call to gospel proclamation assumes that the church is meant to be on the offensive. Not not to be offensive, but to be on the offensive. To be the one who aggresses, to be the one who advances, the one who moves forward on the offensive And the power of the gospel will prevail. Brothers and sisters, we are part of the greatest enterprise in all the world. 
and we're going to prevail. The gospel is going to prevail. It may not prevail in large measure in this place. We may never grow very large or see many converts, but it will prevail in the world. We march under the flag of King Jesus. We go with a message of love. We go with the sword of the Spirit. We go with the Scriptures. And we go into the world proclaiming this message of the gospel. We're to be aggressive. We're to be on offense. We're not to be on defense. Listen, y'all, we're not supposed to huddle in this room. This is not just a safe place where we coalesce. The church is not just this maintenance project where we all kind of come in and lick our wounds and just try to make it through and, and just kind of coast. No, 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 brothers and sisters, the church is to be aggressive. Remember what Mr. Spurgeon said. The church was meant from the first to be aggressive. We are always on offense. The church is to advance, is to ascend. The church is always trying to take the hill. The church is always trying to proclaim the gospel to the world and to advance. And listen, friends, as we sung earlier, the power of the gospel will prevail. And listen to me, don't, don't misunderstand this. The power of the gospel is not going to prevail in the world because we're so great, we're so smart. We have so many gifts and we have so many eloquent preachers. And because, man, we're just so talented and we have great programs and all this money and we got an a, a awesome worship uh, ministry and band up here. That's not going to be how uh, we, we have victory. That's not going to be why the gospel prevails. Listen, here's how the gospel is going to prevail. It's going to prevail because all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus. You tracking with me? All authority has been given to Christ. And his promise is this, I am with you always I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So how could the gospel fail? He's the one who has all authority. It's his commission, his mission, and he's with us. We have the Holy Spirit in power. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been clothed with the Spirit. And so we know the gospel will prevail, not because of our gifts and our graces, but because of the authority of King Jesus. Because of his power, his authority by the Holy Spirit. Because his promise is that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. So brothers and sisters, we're going to win. We are already, we march victorious into the world with this message of love, this message of gospel proclamation. We go in the power of God himself. So brothers and sisters, the call to gospel proclamation assumes the church is to be on the offensive. The church is to advance and to go into the world. And friends, the power of the gospel will prevail. And we need to pray it will prevail in this place, in this community, in this city, and in all the world. Wouldn't it be so sweet if God used us in whatever little way to get the gospel into the world It's amazing. He uses earthen vessels, weak, frail, failing uh, disciples like us to advance the mission. It's amazing. He doesn't have to use us, y'all. We're not entitled to be used by him. To be used by the Lord Jesus in proclaiming the gospel to the world is a privilege. And we should never take it for granted. And I'm praying that in, in these days we would be seeking God, asking God, would you be pleased, Lord Jesus, to use us in this great kingdom enterprise of bringing the gospel, sending the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to the world. Well, now in closing, I would be remiss if I didn't proclaim the gospel to you, especially those of you here who don't know the Lord, those of you who aren't Christians, aren't part of the church. 
The gospel is the good news that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners. Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And the wonderful message of the gospel is that if you repent of your sins and believe on him, have faith in him, you will be saved. You will have eternal life. And it's this message that has gone forth. It went forth from Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and it spread all over the world. And who knows how many millions have believed its message and been saved through the proclamation of the gospel. How many people have been saved through the preaching of God's word? How many people have been saved through the, the witness of the church? And we're praying tonight, all those here who know the Lord Jesus, we're praying that those of you who don't will come tonight to embrace the gospel. The gospel that has saved souls from, from, from tribes and tongues and people and nations all over the world throughout human history. And it can do it for you tonight. The summons of the gospel is this. If you would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And I call on you tonight as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus to put your faith and trust in him for salvation. And the wonder of this message is that he will do it for you. He will save you. Come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of the message of the gospel. We sometimes can't believe that this message is true and that we get to proclaim it to others. We thank you for the privilege and the joy of proclaiming this gospel to the world and the small part that we get to play in that great mission. We thank you for our captain, the Lord Jesus, that he does have all authority in heaven and on earth. And we thank you that he left us with this promise that he's with us always. We pray that he would be with us here at Emmanuel Church and he would be with us here in Winston-Salem that we would get to see the proclamation of the gospel prevail in this place. Lord, that's why we're seeking to plant the church here. Would you be pleased to do it? And would you be pleased to give us a hand in sending the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth and seeing churches planted from us and missionaries sent out from us? What a joy that would be. But we pray, Lord, that in our midst even tonight, We have those here who don't know you. We pray that you would save them by this glorious gospel. That they would see tonight that they can be saved. That they could come to faith in Jesus Christ. All they need to do is repent of their sins and leave their way of life. And to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus to be saved. And your promise is that you will save them. Would you do this, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.